Let's pray as we begin our morning. We thank you, uh, Lord, for today. We thank you that you are creator God, that you have made provision for our salvation. And I would ask this morning that, uh, that you would minister to us by your spirit, that you would manifest your presence here today, that you would um, just uh, coach us and lead us and guide us in the story of Jonah. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, how many were here last week? And what, do you, what is something that you took away from the discussion of Jonah last week? Let's hear two people. Something about Jonah that you remember from our discussion last week, either knew or you already knew but had affirmed. The possibility that Jonah died. Was that new or is that something? Yeah, I never heard that. You never heard that before. Yeah, I, I have a picture of um, Jonah on the Sistine Chapel. I have it on a slide, and I actually have it in a book here that I got at the gift shop there. And uh, he, Michelangelo had his own view on Jonah that we'll get into a little bit this morning. It's kind of interesting that related to that same idea. Anybody else? Something new or affirmed about Jonah from last week? Yes? It may not have been a whale. It may not have been a whale. Might have been, yeah, it might have. I like to think personally it was a a special fish that God designed. Uh, Maybe with a little apartment inside and a bunk bed or something. Um, But uh, God can do it. He's creator. He can do what he wants. Yeah, um, but certainly would have got um, the Ninevites' attention. What does Nineveh refer to, by the way? The name Nineveh. Anybody remember? It's the fish god. They worshipped fish. They were on a coast, so it stands to reason they depended upon fish. So they worshipped fish, and I always think of it as evidence of God's sense of humor that He used a fish to rescue Jonah and then spend three days there and then belch him out on the sand on the beach somewhere. And I can't imagine he looked or smelled very good when that happened. And that may have had um, contributed to his success in evangelizing the Ninevites. Nineveh, was it a big town or a small town? Huge. Huge town. Probably when you read different people, you get different ideas um, but with its suburbs, it, um, well, it was 150,000 people. And its, it's suburbs, it's uh, projected to be about six miles along the course of a river. Uh, big town uh, for its day. And uh, it was, it was, what nation was Nineveh in? Syria. Syria, or alternately Assyria. And Syria was a big, uh, big country that was um, known for its cruelty and was a conquering country. But since the time of, uh, w- of its collapse, after about 150 years after Jonah, it's been occupied by other countries. And so the Babylonians, and then later the Persians, and then later the Greeks. And so, um, and even today, it's, you know, it's still in the paper it's still a significant country, much smaller, obviously, than it was in those days. Um, but it's still here, and Egypt is still here, and Israel is still here, and they're still fighting each other, just like they were then. And so certain things don't change. It's just interesting to me that God has preserved 
some countries throughout since antiquity. Uh, I want to say about uh, 600 AD. I, I wrote it in my initial notes, but I, I'm going by memory, which tends to be a little leaky. AD, I mean, yeah. BC, BC, it was the time of, yes, yes, obviously before Christ. And it was uh, shortly, it was about three generations after David, King David, and then Solomon, and there was Jeroboam the first, and Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom after the, after the division. Um, The question is, was it the first time that the gospel was presented outside of the Jewish nation? Just on the face of it, um, I would say no. Um, you know, so we have evidence, for example, that the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon to hear his wisdom. And I would presume that would include Ju uh, Judaism. Um, and people, there was a whole provision in the law to accommodate people of other faiths who aspired to the Jewish faith. So there were people who came to Judaism either by having been conquered or who just wanted to be part of what was going on in Israel. So you know, on the face of it, I would say no. It was probably presented, um, and the prophets were about, present the prophets that predated uh, the judges, I should say, um, that predated David were commissioned with sharing God's word. So, you know, I, I, that's a good question. I would say probably not, given the evidence from the law. Um, but, um, you know, I can't say definitively. Yes, sir, Dave. I'm, I guess I'm having trouble with the gospel being presented before Christ at all. It wasn't the gospel, but it was... Judaism and faith in God. Sure. It makes, Dave makes the point that it, was, it wasn't the gospel like we think of it as in pre having presented in Acts. The gospel actually didn't come until Acts. But I th my, the intent of your question, I think, having to do with the word of God and, you know, as it existed at that time. Um, but yeah, that would, that's a good, uh, a proper distinction to be sure. This is good. Other questions or comments? All right. Well, there's one uh, topic that I had intended to bring up last time. I mean, I did bring it up, but I didn't. I, when, I, when we finished, all right, I'm pushing the button here. Where do I go? Do I have to turn something on? There we go. All right, what am I not doing here? So the review, thank you. Uh, we'll just put you in charge of that. Uh, Jonah was a real person. He's mentioned, he's referenced in Second Kings um, and then from the Northern Kingdom. Uh, Syria was the enemy. We talked a little bit last week about why 
It's a large city. The fish was a real fish. And Jonah gives an example about how to pray in times of trouble. We talked about that last week. All right, next slide. Oh, okay. I have uh, handouts here that I've given that I've listed here, and um, I don't. Last week I really didn't go A, B, and C like you're used to with Pastor D, and uh, so if we get to the end of this and there are questions that you haven't filled out, I'm certainly. Um, Happy to, uh, okay, certainly, you know, you know, give me any questions. This is pretty straightforward this morning. Um, review the theology. All right. So I wanted to camp a little bit more this morning on the whole discussion about allegory. And the question The allegory question, chapter two in the book of Jonah is allegory, it's poetry. You recall that discussion where chapters one, three, and four are, um, there we go, nope, no, go back, okay. One, three, and chapter two is allegory, chapters one, three, and four are narrative, they're history, and Jesus refers to Jonah twice in the Gospels. He refers to Jonah actually five times by name, but in these two passages, uh, in Luke and Matthew, and they're kind of the, one conversation is a summary of the other. Going to Luke first, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. In the verse 31, about the Queen of South will come, and, um, and uh, I've deleted it just for the purpose of uh, keeping it on the slide here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Now Matthew amplifies it just a little bit more. You'll see the similar text. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what exactly was the sign? Well, the sign was Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh and so forth. Now, <clears throat> I think I have mentioned before that... Um, in our church here, for the past several years, um, we have done conversations around the subject of creation and the Institute for Creation Research. We had the same people come when we had the eclipse. And um, there are a group of people, I think there's a lot of people who here now who get their publication. And the Institute for Creation Research actually started in the 70s, but it was in response to Christians being intimidated by science, by science. And what's interesting to me is that there are, it's not gotten any better. I mean, there are people who, um, because science is so 
insistent that there's really no alternative ex explanation to origins except for evolution. And Christians become intimidated by that. And it has leached over, as it were, into the subject of Jonah. And I want to just develop this a little bit more as to why the question is important. Because some Christians say, well, what, who cares? The Bible's the Bible. God is God. Why does it matter whether the, uh, whether there was, the earth is 6,000 years or 6 billion? Or why does it matter if the Jonah was allegory or if it's, you know, if it's a real event? Who cares? Well, I'll, st I'll share with you why it matters. With her subjective origins, people would have, in fact, I've read, well, the science of evolution is the same science that took us to the moon and back. That's false. Anybody poke a hole in that argument? Yes, sir. Biology versus physics. Biology versus physics. physics? Okay. I would suggest to you that if you ever, if you ever want to see a testimony of this, watch the movie Apollo 13. It's a great story, and it depicts when the Apollo things blew up and they didn't work and they lost their oxygen, and they had to get down to, they had to bring them back home. And in the movie, they're depicting the measuring the available energy in a battery. How many amps does it have left? And how many are we going to need to get, get the, the astronauts back home? That is science. That is empirical science. Two people can measure amplitude in a battery and come up with exactly the same results because the factor of science is that it is able to be duplicated. And so and we have laws of science and we have rules of science and we have things that have been established by experimentation for now hundreds of years. That is science. Christians have absolutely nothing to fear from empirical science. All truth is God's truth. But to say that the same science that got us to the moon and back is the same science as evolution is nonsense. It's, non it's propaganda. Have you ever had an experience where two people, yes sir, Dave. But you can say they both use the same facts. They use the same facts, they use the same evidence. It's the interpretation of the evidence that becomes the distinctive. And if you, as you study it, you say, well, there's a lot of evidence that supports legitimate science of a young earth. A young, the reason that the age of the earth matters is evolution needs billions of years, millions of, as Sagan used to say, millions and millions. It takes a lot of time for evolution to occur. And if you, can, if you can establish that the earth is young, then evolution's impossible because it takes time. So, so the, the distinctive in the debate becomes, well, if you have evidence, then what do, you, what do you do with it? How do you interpret it? And there's lots of evidence that would suggest that the earth is very young. The sediment on the moon, the sediment in the bottom of the ocean occurs at a certain rate. And you can measure that. When they went and landed on the moon, they expected to sink into 10 or 12 feet of sediment because the earth is millions of, well, no, it's very shallow because the earth is young. 
And that when they, the magnetic field that surrounds <clears throat> the earth, um, it's, it's disintegrating. It disintegrates over time. Well, if the earth is millions and millions of years old, it should have been gone a long time ago. But it's still there, and it's still doing its job. The erosion, the, the uh, erosion that occurs on mountains, it, it, uh, it occurs at a rate of a few um, millimeters a year. Well, if the, if the earth was millions and millions of years old, there wouldn't be any mountains. They'd all have eroded flat because, um, because of the erosion rate. Yeah. We, uh, men's discipleship, uh, Bible study, we were uh, watching a video, and they were saying not only moon, I mean the earth, and, but other planets, their uh, uh, magnetic fields are still pretty strong. Sure, sure. So principle. They're supposed to be even older than Earth. Sure. And they still have a field. Yeah. I've I got to be real careful about getting into the weeds on this stuff because I can go all morning. <laughs> but the point being, the point being is that Christians have nothing to fear from science, from legitimate science. The other thing is that naturalism. First Peter talks about naturalism, people looking at the earth and saying, all things continue as they have. Means that the rules, that, the rules of biology and physics that exist today are the same ones that have always existed. Well, what would such a person do with the miracles described in the Gospels? They're impossible. Because I've never seen such a thing before. It's called existentialism. Now, we use, we use, that word gets used in a lot of different situations where it doesn't really apply, but at its core, existentialism means reality is, confi- is confined to that which I can experience with my five senses. That's it. And if I can't see it, if I, don't, if I can't reproduce it, then it's not true. So a, a pure existentialist would disregard all of scripture, at least the miracles in the Old and New Testament. Couldn't possibly happen because I've never seen one before. Doesn't take too long experience in Africa to recognize that there are lots of things that happen on this planet that I can't experience, that, I, that cannot be defined by my own experience. So, so an existentialist would look at Jonah and say, well, that's an allegory. It's intended to be an allegory and um, never, never intended to be taken seriously. And the reason that Christians have bought into this is because we're intimidated by science. And that's just, that should, ought not to be. So I'm going back to the quotation of Christ now. And so he says, as the son of man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so if Jonah is allegory, let's just, let's just explore this a little bit rationally. If Jonah is allegory, there's three possibilities when Jesus said, my resurrection is going to be just like Jonah. One is that Jesus knew that it was allegory and continued the deception. That Jesus, well, yeah, Jonah was allegory. Jesus knew it was allegory, but he didn't depict it as allegory. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish. Does that sound like a fairy tale? 
No, that's, that's narrative, that's history, that's fact. He's telling an event, he's describing an event. It was not depicted in the text as allegory. That's significant. So, as, <clears throat> so Jesus knew it was fiction, it was false, but he continued to lie anyway. What does that do to Jesus' qualifications as Messiah? It's flushed. Yeah. yeah. He can't be Messiah because he's a liar. He also does the same thing with creation. He depicts uh, frequently the, the act of creation in his ministry. Okay, well, maybe Jesus wasn't a liar. Maybe he just didn't know that it was allegory. He didn't, he didn't have the benefit of modern science to recognize that, Jonah, that a man can't really live three nights and days in the belly of a fish. What does that do to his qualifications as Messiah? It's flushed, yeah, because he's not omniscient. He's not God if he didn't know. Well, let's say that it was allegory. He knew it was allegory. Go back to the quotation. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If Jonah was allegory, what else is allegory? Maybe the resurrection itself was allegory. Does it matter if you believe that Jonah was true, factual history, or not. As a Christian, as a man of faith, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. Because if Jonah was allegory, and Jesus said what he said about Jonah, either he was a charlatan, or you get into the question of textual criticism. Textual criticism or hermeneutics are studies, how you study the Bible to determine what is truth. And there are rules of interpretation that have been established for 2,000 years. And they say, and one of them is when, when the text, um, you gain truth by the words that are used, by its context, and when little, when little truth makes the best sense, use no other sense. There are passages in the Psalms, there are passages in poetry where it's clearly intended to be allegory, and you can read that in the text. Jonah 2 is an example. But if it's not intended to be allegory, it's intended to be read as history. And some of the historical events beggar belief. They challenge our faith. Is it really possible that Jonah could have spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? The Bible says it. I have a choice to make. Is it really possible that, that creation could have happened in six days? The Bible is extremely explicit. Where else in the Bible does, it, does the author, does Moses in this case, define his terms? The evening and the morning were the first day. It doesn't happen very often. There was a reason for that. And I think we're living that reason now. Moses was very explicit in defining his terms. I camp on this this morning because you and I know people, perhaps people that you wouldn't think are caving intellectually on the interpretation of Scripture. 
I had a friend, a person who was a pastor in Albany. Didn't believe in, I was going to have the, uh, a church community group sponsor that ICR event that we had here a few years ago. I wanted that to be a community-wide event. Well, he didn't want to do it because he didn't believe that creation, these, these guys are too dogmatic on six-day creation. And he gave me this lecture about, well, you know, Moses was concerned about the Israelites and they spent 40 years in the desert and they were traumatized. I mean, it sounded like PC nonsense. <laughs> they were traumatized by this experience in the desert, so he crafted this, this, uh, this narrative about how things came to be. But now we know better because we have science. And so science becomes the God. Yes, sir. So my backbone of pretty much everything in the science world, right? Say again, I miss it. Mathematics. Mathematics. Is the backbone, backbone of science. It's very, absolutely. So when you look at professionals that use mathematics and you do math to figure out how you change these codes... They're raising that to like the 50th power, which they, is absurd, is an absurd number. They don't even deal with them. So that's mathematics proves also yeah. that science, that it is real. Young Earth is real. It's all provable by mathematics. It is. Um, the, the difficulty that you get into is the presumption. And in mathematics, for example, in the age of this particular um, fossil, how old is it? Well, it depends on the assumptions that you make about the fossil. How much carbon-14 existed when it was originated and how much there is now. And so you, you have to throw in a lot of conjecture. And so you come up with different conclusions based upon your initial assumptions. So it's not science. Nobody was there when the Earth began. Anything we take on origins is a matter of faith. It is not, are you, I have this conversation with my son. Well, I believe in science. No, you have made science your God. The difference is not you have science and I have faith. We both have faith. The difference is what we choose to put our faith in. He was giving me an example about how uh, I um, saw a car accident and I made a faith conjecture about how, what caused the car accident. I said, why would I do that? Why would I make any assumption strictly on the basis of faith? I make my assumptions partly in faith because we're all required to do that, but it's also because of what I see. Bottom line, when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you look at the creation of your body. You go outside and see the relationship between trees and the earth and the atmosphere and how rains bring water that keep us alive. All of the conditions necessary for us to survive. Evidence to a creationist doesn't come in trickles. It comes administered at the end of a fire hose, blasting us in the face. We see the evidence of design. We see the evidence of beauty. We see the evidence of creation every time we look outside or every time we look in the mirror. We have evidence 
by the snootfall. It is evolution that is lacking in evidence. What species have we ever seen or what species can we ever determine evolved from one thing to another? After all these years, and again, I'm getting into the weeds. We'll talk about Jonah. Okay, so the first question on your quiz is probably the most significant thing I wanted to camp on today, um, and that's why I spent so much time on it. This is the picture of Jonah at the Sistine Chapel, and you can tell it's Jonah because there's this fish here in the picture, and it doesn't look like a fish that would be big enough to swallow the Jonah, uh, especially since Jonah looks a little pudgy, but... um, at any rate, that's, that's uh, Michelangelo's depiction of Jonah and the, and the whale on the Sistine Chapel. Now, Michelangelo put this picture in the ceiling right over the altar where the, 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 Sistine, the chapel is the chapel. It's where they hold church services, and there's an altar there. It's a huge place. It's probably twice as, well, I'd say three times as long as the sanctuary and probably just as wide. And... <clears throat> So he puts this right over the altar, and the reason that he did that was because he depicted Jonah as the second person to have been resurrected by God. What would you say to that? Was, was, excuse me, let me say that, let me, I said that wrong. That Jesus was the second person to be resurrected by God, and Jonah was the first. Now, his argument was, well, there's other people who were resurrected. Jesus raised Lazarus and the centurion's daughter and Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, her son. There were other people raised from the dead in the scriptures, but they were raised by prophets, ostensibly. Obviously, everybody is raised by God, but through the prophets. And Michelangelo believed that Jesus took a secondary position to Jonah because Jesus was the second person raised by God. How do you respond to that? Jonah's dead. That's your answer. Lazarus, dead. Widow of Zarephath's son, dead. They're all dead. So, the res- so when, when the New Testament, when Paul speaks of, of Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection, he was the first fruits of the resurrection that stayed resurrected. And just as you and I, our hope in the resurrection is that once we're resurrected, we will stay resurrected, whereas um, these other resurrections occurred why, did, why, why were people resurrected in the, in the Bible, by the way? The widow of Zarephath gives a really good reason. When, I'm trying to think it was Elijah, might have been, I think it was Elijah, resurrected her son, she responded saying, by this I know that you are a man of God and that the words you speak by the words of God. Any miracle that is done in the scriptures was done to validate 
God's truth. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in John 3. We know that you were a teacher of, come from God because what? No man can do these miracles that you're doing unless he's from God. So miracles were always intended to validate the words of the speaker, the person who performed the miracle. No doubt also true in Jonah's case. That was uh, a little side uh, diversion that I just thought was interesting. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Now we're in Jonah 1, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now he, did, he didn't want to go preach to Nineveh. What's interesting to me was his options were just to stay put. He could have just stayed home. But he actively ran away from God. This is a map that you can't read. I was afraid of it. But you see the three red balloons. And the one in the middle is Joppa. And the one to the right is Nineveh. That's where you're supposed to go. And Tarshish is the one on the left. It's in modern-day Spain. And so when he ran away from the direction of the Lord... He literally ran in the opposite direction and intended to go a long way. Number one in your notes, Jonah's, Jonah's um, disobedience was deliberate. Now I can imagine when Jonah goes down to Joppa and he's looking for a ship. Now in those days, they didn't publish itineraries. They didn't publish schedules. A ship arrives in port and it offloads whatever it was carrying or takes on whatever it's going to carry, and it goes to the next place. And so when you want to get on a board a ship, you just ride down there, and, or you just go down there, and you talk to the different people, and they say, you know anybody going to, to, to um, Tarshish? Can you imagine Jonah, when he goes down to the port, he has money in his pocket, and he has, he found a ship going the opposite direction. It may be that he never intended to go to Tarshish. It may be that he just found a ship that was going there and that was the direction he wanted to go. Can you imagine though, and I'm speculating here, this is not anything substantive. Jonah saying, Here's a, here's a ship going to Tarshish. It's the direction I want to go. I've got money in my pocket. It seems like a nice guy. This must be God's will. Can you imagine him saying that? You ever have the experience where you, you, uh, you make a decision that you want to do something and you look for evidence our limbic system does that to us. You ever have the experience where you want to buy a car, you want to buy a Camry, a Toyota, and all of a sudden what happens? You see them everywhere. And so if you are, it's the same thinking in our brains that if we make a decision that we want to do something, then we will look for evidence of validation from circumstances. We all do it. Did you have your hand up? No. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139. Jonah knew that passage. 
he knew that he couldn't flee from God because that was a, a psalm that was in existence in Jonah's time. Jonah's disobedience was deceived. And he participated and he contributed to his own deception. He believed, despite the evidence to the contrary, that it was possible to flee. Otherwise, why wouldn't he just stay put? Stay where he was. That's number two in your notes. Jonah's disobedience was doomed. Now, somebody last week brought this up. There's a sequence of the use of the word down in Jonah 1, chapter 1. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship to take a nap. He goes down to the lowest parts of the ship, and then he goes down into the sea in chapter 2. There's a, there's a sort of a, um, an alliteration of Romans 1. Maybe, maybe I'm stretching it here, but there's a, there's a sequence in logic that Paul uses in Romans 1 where he said, God gave them up where people who rebel, people who deny God, people who reject God, God gave them up. God gave them up. And when you, next time you read Romans 1, look for that phrase and see the context where God will, if you want to deny God, if you want to rebel, he'll let you. God gave them up. Have at it. Up to a point. Now in Jonah's case, by God's grace, God didn't just let him go. Next thing you know, Jonah's, Jonah's disobedience was disciplined. And by disciplined, I mean corrected. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may par- be partakers of his holiness. I've mentioned I have a son who is in rebellion in his faith, and he's miserable. And there are events in his life that are making him depressed. He's just not going anywhere. And periodically, um, I'll do the, what's the Dr. Phil question? How's that working out for you? <laughs> Try not to be too snarky. It is tempting. But I tell him, I am rejoicing that you cannot flee from God and be comfortable. What that communicates to me is that God has not let you go. He is pursuing you and will continue to pursue you until you return to him. I remember a conversation with my brothers. We were painting a house, painting my dad's house. I have four brothers. My oldest was a pastor. Still is. And my two brothers in between, I'm the youngest, I have two twin brothers in between, and they were both in rebellion. One was in the Navy, and one was a builder. And they were both in rebellion. And my brother John told them 
that God is not going to let you go. Partly because my mother was praying for him. God is not going to let you go and you are not going to be at peace until you recognize God's will for your life, that he is drawing you. And they were both, they were both miserable. And I can remember just the process. It wasn't, you know, a blinding light on the road to Damascus. It was a process that God used to restore them to himself. And I praise God for it. And I, and I tell Andy the same thing. This history is repeating itself. Where you have cause to be afraid, where you have cause to be concerned, is if, is, is if loved ones in your life are rebelling against God, against what they know to be true, and are perfectly happy with it, perfectly content. That knowledge should drive us to our knees in prayer for that person. We should pray for them anyway. But a great example of Jonah is that God did not give him up, even in his rebellion. God is a God of second chances, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is after he's out of the fish. We're in Jonah 3 now. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the the message that I give to you. And so Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now there's several people in the Bible, in in the narrative of Scripture, to whom God gave second chances, right? Moses. Moses, uh... Um, I've summarized a a discussion on Moses. Moses lived a life of 40s. In the first 40 years, he was um, in Egypt as a favored son of Pharaoh, and uh, it ended when he killed an Egyptian, and he fled to Midian. And he went to Midian, and he uh, married and started a family and tended sheep for 40 years. And it ended when he saw a burning bush, And from there, he went through the plagues and went through Moses, and actually it was a little longer than 40 years. But it ended when he uh, was on the mountain overlooking Canaan when he died. Moses killed a man. And by the law that he himself wrote, he deserved to die. He should have been killed himself. But God made him the lawgiver made him one of the most famous people in all of Judaism, made him a type of Christ. Moses said, another will be coming after me, referring to Messiah. God is a God of second chances. Another one is King David, also guilty of murder, murder of Uriah, and adultery with Bathsheba. And in um, Psalm 32 and 51, you see the repentance that he had for his sin. And after Bathsheba, Bathsheba was the, um, gave him a son who was the heir, was the uh, ancestor of Messiah. And he established the plans for the temple and he wrote most of his psalms after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. God is a God of second chances. The prodigal. Now, the prodigal is intended to be uh, um, a story. It's a parable 
but I believe that most of the parables were based upon actual events. It's not hard to imagine that there was such a person where the prodigal said, I want it now, verse 12 in Luke 15. He wasted his possessions with prodigal living, verse 14, and then he came to himself. I love that phrase. He came to himself. He had a reality orientation or what the alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. Looking at, have you ever been in a pig pen? My dad raised pigs. They're really messy. They really stink. And they're not really tidy. And so he's up to his ankles in pig slop, eating the husks that the, corn, that the pigs probably refused. And he had a moment of clarity. My father has servants who are living better than this. And he makes up his little speech, intending to be rejected by the father. Isn't that amazing? He's intent, he knows what he deserves. He expects to be rejected by his father. It's a beautiful story of reconciliation. The apostle Peter, where in his bombast, gotta love him for that, says, Lord, I will never deny you. And Jesus says, before the sun sets, you will deny me three times. One, two, three. Count them. One, two, three. Three denials. And Peter, when he came to, he came to himself, he had his moment of clarity, went outside, and the text says, and wept bitterly. And so in John 21, the last book, chapter in the book of John, you have a conversation between Jesus and Peter at the seaside where Jesus has Peter affirm his love for him. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Each were a commission to new work based upon his repentance. Second chances. In each case, there was a consequence to the disobedience. Jonah was covered with fish guts and he was isolated in the belly of a fish. Moses was separated from his family and from his nation. David had confrontation in war with Absalom, his son. The prodigal was desperate and Peter received a detailed demonstration. In each case, there was consequence to the disobedience. But the prodigal came to himself, recognition. This is the R's in process now in your notes. The prodigal came to himself. He recognized what his sin was. There was remorse. Peter wept bitterly. There is repentance. This is facing up to what I've done. Jonah does this in the belly of the fish. He repents of his sin and he affirms his obedience. David in the psalm reflects upon the grace of God in his life. Um, beautifully, eloquently, and has become the, um, a model for reflection even to modern times. One of the great stories that I enjoy about going to, over on Thursday night we have prayer over here in the missions, in the basement, not the basement, the first floor of the discipleship center, we pray for our missionaries. And I've asked our missionaries, when you send us an update, give us a story. Tell us what's going on in your ministry. And um, Marianne, Marilyn, Marilyn Escher, translating the scriptures into Wolof, 
from the original languages, including Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. This lady has tremendous brain power going into this effort, and she's spent her entire life doing it. She's almost done. But she's at a point now where she's, she's converting some of the psalms to music because voila for music people, they like music. And so she's brought in some nationals to translate the psalms into music. And these nation, she's reporting to us how these nationals are affected by the psalms and amazed that a person could have such an intimate relationship with their creator. Praise God. What a wonderful story. The word of God is alive and powerful. And then reassignment. And in the case of reassignment, the, uh, oftentimes the work that we're called to do because of our restoration is as great, if not greater, than it was before. I'm almost out of time. <clears throat> I want to make one more point. Easy believism. And it's when people say to themselves, well, I'll just go ahead and do what I want and ask God for forgiveness later. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I don't, there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation, right? So it doesn't really matter what I do. I'll just live the way I want and use my religion as fire insurance. Keep me out of hell. Well, you don't spend too long in this church and hearing messages from this pulpit to understand the fallacy of that kind of thinking, but it's very common, very common theology, and there's this huge debate in Christendom about is it possible that a person can be saved if they don't show any fruit, they don't show any evidence? And our pastor, D, has taken on that discussion and the discussion of Hebrews or did in the last, over the last year. No, it's probably, it's not possible, it's not likely that a person who does not bear fruit has a saving faith. Your your, um, faith is given evidence by what you do. Not to say that works are required for salvation, but there ought to be some evidence if your salvation is genuine. Well, that's the whole debate. It was written, it surfaced uh, several years ago by a guy named John MacArthur wrote a book called The Commandment, The Gospel According to Jesus. Anybody ever heard of that? Several of you have. And, and he came from a you know, grace through faith tradition, but was just plagued by how often people held to this idea. Christians who, you know, I can live, do whatever I want, and God will forgive me. So, you know, sometime before I die, I'll fess up and we'll be cool. There won't be any consequences. Yeah, there is. Psalm 19, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That statement there is a presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and then I shall be innocent of great transgression. 